This Washington Post Life podcast is sponsored by IBM, inventing what's next in science and technology. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer for The Washington Post. Welcome to Washington Post Live. There is a worldwide shortage of semiconductor chips, a shortage that impacts pretty much every aspect of modern life. We're going to tackle many aspects of this problem over three segments over the next hour. But we begin with the Biden administration and its response to this challenge by welcoming back to Washington Post Live the Secretary of Commerce, Gina Raimondo. Secretary, Madam Secretary, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Thank you for having me back. Nice to see you. You too. So before we get into the global shortage of, of chips, I want to talk about something that's related to the supply chain and news that broke uh, last night. And that both uh, here at The Post and other news outlets, that the Biden administration is considering using the National Guard to help alleviate uh, the supply chain problems. One, is there any more that you can tell us about that? And what are the pros and cons of using the National Guard in this way? Good morning. So I don't have any news to break on that, except as you say, you know, we are looking at it. Frankly, we're looking at all of our options. You know, the, the reality is Americans are um, challenged at the moment. Uh, prices are increasing. The, the, you see the, the congestion at the ports. So the president has directed us to look at everything, all arrows in our quiver. Uh, I will tell you, I know as a governor, we I deployed the National Guard last year very effectively during COVID. The National Guard um, could potentially be very helpful. They have tens of thousands of people that have commercial driver's licenses, so theoretically could drive trucks. Obviously, in the Guard, there are logistics experts. They're, frankly, just arms and legs to help with the loading and unloading some of the help uh, at the ports. So we don't have a plan specifically, but you could have, you know, we're looking at all options. It wouldn't certainly would not be a long-term option, certainly would never displace workers who are doing this job. But right now we have a backlog and we have to look at everything that would help us unstick the backlog. All right, let's talk about the, the, the reason why you're here, the topic at hand, the global shortage of semiconductor chips. Could you explain how big a problem this is for American companies and consumers? Uh, it's a huge problem. I think maybe just to make it real for people, um, I would say just think about your daily life. You know, you wake up in the morning, maybe you use a coffee maker that has chips. You get in your car, there are hundreds of chips in the average American vehicle going up 10% with every new model of vehicles and even more so for electric vehicles. Uh, put your computer on, use your phone, use your Peloton or exercise equipment. All of that requires chips. Go to a hospital today, in a modern hospital, all pretty much all medical equipment, ventilators, pacemakers, anything with an on-off switch has chips. So probably more than any other single product, the semiconductor chip underpins everything we do in a day. Now, layer on top of that, the changes in um, our daily lives as our economy goes more digital. You, you know, you see it in your own life as a journalist. Um, is everything in the world in our economy is going more digital, more tech, 
more data intensive. What does that mean? Chips, chips, chips. So it's, um, I honestly can't think of an area of your life, my life, our economy, our family's lives that don't depend on semiconductor chips. So that's the demand of the equation. Put that image in your head. Now I'm going to tell you this. America makes 0% of the most sophisticated chips on our shores. And 70% of the chips we use, of the sophisticated chips, come from one place in the world, which is Taiwan. So, you know, I find that to be um, an almost terrifying prospect. We are exceedingly vulnerable, getting more so as our economy becomes more digital and tech enabled. And it's really an urgent crisis that the president is charging us with fixing. So, Madam Secretary, you anticipated a question I was going to ask. Why is there a shortage of these chips? You, you blew my mind. I did not know that the United States makes 0% of the sophisticated chips um, and that 70% come from Taiwan, which is a national security issue, which I want to get to. But is the fact that there's a, sh a global shortage of chips, is that a, a resource question in terms of what goes into the chips? Or is that a national policy issue based on who's making the chips? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's an all of the above. And to be clear, we didn't wake up one day and find ourselves in this predicament. Um, this has happened over a long period of time, decades. Uh, actually, the semiconductor industry was invented in America. We started it here. And at one point in time, not very long ago, we made enough chips on our shores to fulfill our demand. Um, and now that's just flip-flopped because over the past decades, we have slowly watched manufacturing leave America's shores in search of cheap labor. And now we've lost 25% of our small and medium-sized manufacturers in this country over the past few decades. They're just gone. So there's no one, um, there's no one, there's no magic elixir to fix this. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in losing 25% of those companies, it means we lost the talent, the raw materials, the supplies, the tooling, the machining, the technicians, and we have to really rebuild. By the way, here and in our allied shores, mm -hmm. I think the reason you mentioned national security, it's not just that 70% of the chips come from one country, 70% of the chips come from Taiwan. Right, which is you know, shorthand, I mean, China looms large uh, in, in that equation. But Madam Secretary, given what you just talked about, how you know the United States was, you know, used to make its own semiconductor chips, was the the birthplace of them. Now doesn't seem to make any of them. What is the Biden administration doing to solve the problems you just outlined? Yeah, and I do want to be clear. We we certainly make a lot of chips in America. You know, Intel is a huge company. We just don't make what's called the leading edge or bleeding edge. You know, whatever word you want to use to describe the most sophisticated chips, which, by the way, is what is needed 
in the new technology, mm-hmm. like artificial intelligence, cloud computing, database initiatives, all the new, a lot of healthcare, that is a lot of, um, in, in weapons and military uh, operations, that's what's required. But um, in any event, so I think what the president has charged us with doing is doing everything possible to solve the immediate crisis, uh, which is to say, increasing transparency in the supply chain. I have held numerous convenings with CEOs of the consuming companies, like um, the car companies and computer companies, and also the producing suppliers and saying, okay guys, share the data with each other. There's no room today for hoarding or stockpiling or providing a, uh, a demand signal that isn't fair. And on the supplier side, there's no room for you holding back. Right now, we need you full throttle and, sh- and doing everything you can to supply uh, American consumers. So we're, we're doing all of that to solve the immediate crisis. Long term, we need to make more chips in America, and that is going to require money to incentivize companies to open new manufacturing facilities in America. And that is, the president has a plan. It's a $52 billion investment called the CHIPS Act. It got through the Senate. It's sitting and has been sitting for months in the House, and the House of Representatives has to pass that plan to send the money over here to the Department of Commerce so we can get into the business of building more manufacturing operations in America. It really is that simple. Madam Secretary, is that bill a standalone bill or is that bill that's sitting in the House, you say for months, is it a standalone bill or is it part of the infrastructure package that's been sitting in the House? It's a standalone bill. To be clear, I'm not sure we care precisely how it gets across the finish line and and I don't want to micromanage, you know, how Speaker Pelosi runs her chamber. But to answer your question, it is now a standalone bill. And I should say one of the kind of champions and leaders on that bill is Senator Todd Young, who I know you'll be having here later. The Senator and I have worked very closely on that bill, getting it out of the Senate. This is a bipartisan issue. Like this is the core to our national security interest. And so the the president has directed us to work in a bipartisan way with members of Congress to get this done. But it's, as you said, it is sitting now in as a standalone bill in the House and we really need it passed. And so then since you you invoked the name of of Senator Young, Senator Todd Young of, of Indiana, is there anything left to be done on Congress's end to, you know, get this package negotiated done and um, up for a vote. Is, are all the negotiations done? Are there out, outlying outstanding issues left? So the, the bill is through the Senate. It, it is passed, done, bipartisan vote, by the way. Democrats and Republicans voted for it. It is that version of the bill is now in the Got House. It. And, you know, we'll see. We'll see. The House could pass it tomorrow, as is, which, of course, I think would be fantastic. Um, They could pass it as is, or they could make adjustments as is part of the legislative process, well within their prerogative to do that. But here's the thing. It has to happen. We cannot wait. It takes two years to build a new semiconductor fab. So even if I had the money today, 
we're talking years before we meaningfully increase the supply. Um, I want to come back to Taiwan and the efforts um, that are uh, being uh, led by Brian Deese, who's President Biden's top economic advisor. And he has sought the Taiwanese government's uh, help in resolving the global semiconductor shortage and to increase their chip production for the United States. Do you know where that where things stand on that effort? It's a constant dialogue. I would say we continue to be in touch with them. Uh, we've been helpful in providing vaccines, which is important. Um, we've seen all around the world, not just in Taiwan, but in Malaysia, factories going down because of COVID outbreaks. So it's, I would say we have continuous sustained engagement uh, with TSMC and the Taiwanese government to make sure we're always doing everything that we can in order to increase supply. Uh, what impact, if any, um, has former President Trump's tariffs imposed on goods from China in 2018? Did they have, have they had any impact in triggering uh, this shortage? Not, not significantly. Um, you know, the, the tariff, I suppose, war that he started did have ramifications. But I would say in this instance, the reality is the demand for semiconductors is greater than, than anyone predicted and is increasing at a more rapid rate than anyone predicted. Again, I think you can see that in your own life. You don't have to be a semiconductor engineer to get that. You know, all of our lives have become so much more digital and tech enabled, which means more chips. Um, and that demand has spiked at exactly the same time that we are kind of, um, seeing the negative effects of having let our manufacturing base in America erode so much over a long period of time. Well, speaking of manufacturing, we have a, a, an audience question coming from Ohio. His name is Thomas Pretlow, uh, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing it. What can be done to incentivize the manufacture of the needed chips in the United States? Thank you. So that is uh, the, the $52 billion that President Biden is proposing would be spent in a few different ways. Um, first, to provide incentives for companies to build large factories in America on our shores. And this is something I did as governor very effectively. Uh, we want to provide incentives for U.S. companies and non-U.S. companies like like a Samsung or um, other, you know, other non-U.S. companies that make chips. We need them to set up shop in America. And so these will be incentives to do that. The second thing we'll spend money on is job training, apprenticeships, making sure we have the talent. You know, it's incredible to think about how many jobs we will create in America building these factories. By the way, we don't have that talent ready today. So we have to do job training and apprenticeship programs in order to make that happen. And then finally, we'll be investing in basic research and development. So chips are really sophisticated and we will be using some of the money to set up uh, around the country different technology development hubs probably in concert with companies, with research universities to kind of stimulate the core R&D that will allow America to stay at the cutting edge. Mm -hmm. You know, Madam Secretary, Politico had a recent article complimenting you as, quote, 
one of the administration's secret weapons on Capitol Hill, citing praise you've received from Senators Susan Collins of Maine and Jean Shaheen from New Hampshire. How do you see your role in the Biden administration? Well, uh, that's a, that I'm smiling because I have enjoyed working with both of them and, and think highly of both of them, uh, those senators. You know, my role is to do everything I can to improve America's competitiveness. We, American businesses are the best in the world. American businesses are the best in the world. Our entrepreneurs are the best in the world and the most entrepreneurial in the world. But we need to make sure that they, you know, that we make investments necessary for, to, for them to compete. And so that's my job, whether that is, you know, setting this technology standards so American businesses can compete on a global paying field, making sure we rebuild our manufacturing base, especially in semiconductors here in America. That is core to our competitiveness. Investments in like really relevant job training and apprenticeships, digital apprenticeships. My whole job, everything I work on, trade policy, tariffs uh, with the USTR is all designed with a single goal in mind improve American competitiveness for businesses and workers. And I will say, uh, having been a governor, I, I probably bring a, a different perspective into the administration. I know what it's like to have my name on the ballot. I've lived politics. Uh, I've run a state. I know what it's like to be an executive. And I have extensive experience dealing with the legislative body. You know, and so I, I enjoy all aspects of the job. You know, I was going to ask you a question about that because I think it was last week I spoke with Labor Secretary Marty Walsh, former mayor of Boston, asking him, you know, compare, contrast being a mayor versus being a member of the cabinet. You, as a governor, you had even more power um, to affect the citizens of your state. But as a cabinet member, do you find that you have even more power than you did as governor? Or is or, or do you have left less in terms of affecting the day-to-day -day lives of people? Yeah, I would say it's just different. It's different. When you're the governor, one of the things I loved most was being out and about in the community and meeting people in my community whose lives are positively affected by our work. Uh, I loved that. And you don't have that so much in this job. In this job, Obviously, the the magnitude of the change that you can affect is 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 that is you know vastly more significant. So, in the semiconductor mm -hmm. example, this this matters for all of America and all of America for decades to come. I may not meet as many of those people, but uh, so in that respect, you don't get the kind of, in my case, emotional benefit from that. And, and I'm on a team here. You know, politics, this is a team sport. We're on the president's team, which I love. Um, but the magnitude is obviously, you know, much, much bigger. But I definitely miss um, running into students in Rhode Island who went through community college tuition free and were thriving in a job and knowing that that was the case because of an initiative that I pushed through. You know, and, and to that point, because there are a lot of conversations happening as we speak about the president's um, Build Back Better Act, the, the overall reconciliation bill, how important is, is passage um, of the reconciliation bill 
and also the hard infrastructure bill. How important is that to your work as Commerce Secretary and all the things we've been talking about from the semiconductor chips shortage to supply chain issues and so on? It's necessary. It's more than important. It's necessary. By the way, forget about my work. It's really, really, really important for the everyday American. Like, it's really important for the millions of American women who want a job but can't get a job because they can't find affordable childcare for their kids. It's really important for people who can't go back to work because they're taking care of their 90-year-old mom at home because they can't get a home care worker. Uh, it's really important for the four-year-old kid in America who deserves a chance and deserves public pre-K so she can get her life off to a good start. So, you know, it's, uh, I don't know where we'll be if these things don't pass. I'm proud of the president for sticking with it. And I hope members of Congress do the right thing on this. Get out of Washington and go back home and you'll see how these investments will, you know, make the lives of your constituents better, more productive, uh, healthier, you know, I think it's just, they're all necessary investments. You know, uh, uh, Madam Secretary, I almost called you governor, Mad Madam Secretary, uh, we have about 90 seconds left. And I have to ask you th this one quick question. You know, I've been, I've been hearing from, you know, sources in the, in the business community, knowing that they knew I was going to be talking to you. And I just wonder how do, there's a perception out there that the Biden administration is quote unquote, anti-business. Is that fair? No, that is absolutely not fair. The president is pro-business by his own admission and by his actions, as am I, as, are, as is this administration. Listen, what we are not for is businesses and labor practices that hurt workers, but we believe in policies that are good for business and good for workers. Those two things aren't inconsistent. And by the way, everything we're talking about here investments in broadband, investments in chips, investments in skills. These are investments in basic infrastructure, airports, roads. This is all good for business. So uh, we're, we are card-carrying capitalists. We are pro-business. And my whole reason for being here is to help American businesses compete and out-compete the rest of the world. And with that, we are going to leave it there. Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo, former governor of the great state of Rhode Island. Thank you very much for coming back to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much. And I'll be back in a moment to talk with Senator Todd Young about his concerns and what this semiconductor shortage could mean. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. There's something that underlies how things function in the world. I think it starts with being curious. That's where it starts. We have particle physicists. Designers. Engineers. Economists. Chemists. Biologists. Ethnomusicologists. I am an IBM research because I love the people I work with. I admire the people I work with. They're incredibly good. And because they're so good, I can be good. And that's the beauty of it. Hello, I'm Elise Labitt from American University. As we continue to navigate the COVID pandemic, 
The future of work, health, and climate depends on innovation in science and emerging technologies. And to talk about how the U.S. can reinvigorate its approach to innovation, I'm joined by Dr. Dario Gill, Senior Vice President and Director of IBM Research. Dario, great to have you. Thank you, Elise. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, let's start by, uh, in May, IBM published a, a very robust set of ideas and policy recommendations called Science Forward. Talk to us a little bit about Science Forward, this policy agenda, and why you think it's so critical right now. Well, it's a reflection of the urgency of science and the uh, urgent uh, challenges and opportunities that we confront right now and the role that science and technology is going to have in addressing them. So let me give you a couple of examples. Take semiconductors, uh, the world of chips, and, and I think perhaps it's come to a surprise to many people how ubiquitous these semiconductors are. And that the reason why, uh, part of the reason why we're seeing, for example, shortages in the manufacturing of cars, it is driven, is driven by limited supply chain uh, gaps that we have on, on semiconductors. And we've also seen that in this area of semiconductors, we are confronting a, a national challenge. And that is the fact that the United States does not manufacture the most advanced chips anymore. And that those are you know, exclusively being manufactured in, uh, in East Asia. So what can we do about it? Well, one of the you know, uh, urgencies uh, that we're advocating for in, in the Science Forward Agenda is we need to invest in semiconductor R&D and we need to invest in semiconductor production. A second area that I think uh, it's extremely important is we gotta invest in the industries of the future. And I'll highlight as an example, quantum computing and the emergence of a new industry. And this is an area where we absolutely believe that the United States needs to be a global leader and it's time to invest more aggressively in that space. And third, I would highlight a, a last example, which is the need for all of us in the science and technology community to, to collaborate in unique new ways. And we propose the idea of creating an international science reserve that would allow uh, scientists and technologies that sit in the private sector and the public sector to collaborate in unique new ways and that we could mobilize that capacity, much like we mobilize the reserves in the military when there is a time of need, like a pandemic or a global disaster. Yeah, that science reserve is a great idea, and it really could be applied to any sector, really. Um, but let's go back to the semiconductors. I don't think people really realize, as you said, how much the semiconductor, this little chip, runs our lives. Um, IBM recently, I know, unveiled the world's first two nanometer semiconductor chip. Talk to us about the significance of the creation of this chip and what role IBM is playing more generally in the advancement of semiconductor innovation. You're absolutely right in, in the fact that these chips uh, are a, a marvel of technology and underpin the modern digital economy. They're inside our, uh, our cars or computers or, uh, or uh, cell phones or supercomputers or satellite, you name it. There is not a sector uh, in the US economy that does not rely on semiconductors. And what behind the scenes is we have these little pieces of silicon that contain you know, as many as tens of billions of transistors each the size you know, of just a few nanometers inside, so extraordinarily small per transistor. And what we announced this year is that uh, we were the first company in the world to create the two nanometer technology generation that will be used for manufacture future chips. 
And the reason this matters is, let me give you a concrete evidence, is because every two to three years, we have to shift from generation to generation. And it's the reason why your cell phone gets better, right, or computers get faster. And uh, to be quantitative about it, uh, the two nanometer generation would allow you to have the same level of performance that you have in your smartphone today, but your battery would be able to last for four days. That's how much more efficient it is compared to today. Or if you wanted to trade uh, that kind of like energy consumption and then still you know, charge the battery once a day, you could achieve 45% better performance on, on your phone. So it's a good example of the power of investing in R&D, which we do so heavily in, in, in IBM and that how that R&D pays dividends because it generates breakthroughs that then can be used in areas like semiconductors and lift all sectors of the economy. Yeah, I mean, look, it's amazing how those semiconductors, as you said, are, are, are kind of so important to our lives. Now, obviously, the private sector is you know, driving the innovation, but government has a role to play. So, so what other steps do you think the government could take to you know, not only protect the chip industry, but foster domestic manufacturing more broadly? Well, the United States uh, at the federal level needs to invest more aggressively in supporting science and technology through federal research and development budgets. Uh, let's put it in perspective that uh, in the 1960s, uh, the level of investments as a percent of GDP uh, coming from the federal government in science and technology was about 1.2%. And what we've seen is an erosion uh, over time from that number, and it is time to reinvigorate it. And, and the reason for doing that is because it's a path to be able to invest in the STEM talent of the nation and provide more opportunity more broadly across the United States, because it is the basis, basis for competitiveness. We talked the example of semiconductors and areas like industries of the future, like quantum computing. And frankly speaking, because we need these advances in science and technology to be able to confront global crisis, whether it's climate change and the energy transition or dealing with uh, you know, pandemics and other kinds of uh, global crisis of the kind. So investing in semiconductors and domestic uh, manufacturing cap capability and core R&D is an indispensable component to realize those objectives. Well, it's clear, as you said, to remain globally competitive as well as prepare for future crisis, that strategic investment is so important. And the U.S. government has a role to play in reinvigorating that approach to science and innovation. Dr. Dario Gill, Senior Vice President and Director of IBM Research, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to be here today. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. I'm Jonathan Capehart, opinion writer at The Washington Post. Let's continue our conversation about the global chip shortage with Senator Todd Young, Republican from the great state of Indiana. Senator Young, welcome back to Washington Post Live. It's good to be with you, Jonathan. So um, let's talk about that piece of legislation you were talking about in that clip there. Um, it, it, it's called, it, it's better known as the Endless Frontier Act. It's now titled the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act. What would this legislation do specifically to help the U.S. semiconductor industry? Well, the heart of the legislation uh, is uh, the Endless Frontier Act uh, portion, which uh, significantly increases public investment in applied research, uh, research that's directed towards solving real-world problems. Uh, 
uh, in the realms of, of artificial intelligence and quantum computing and battery storage and robotics and advanced manufacturing. Uh, this is an uh, area where uh, the Chinese Communist Party and other countries have been spending quite a bit uh, because there are collective benefits to be realized uh, by countries through these investments. Uh, the United States over the years have seen uh, inv such investments trend downward. These investments have really planted the seeds uh, for the establishment of new businesses and even new industries like the aerospace industry in the past. The other piece of the uh, uh, USICA is the CHIPS Act. The CHIPS Act uh, was a piece of legislation that actually was authorized in 2019 as part of our National Defense Authorization Act. This would um, create incentives for uh, chip fabricators uh, like TSMC out of Taiwan or Samsung out of South Korea to locate their fabrication facilities in the United States uh, so that we don't have to be solely dependent on other countries to produce uh, those high-end chips that UN Secretary Raimondo referred to. You know, let's talk about an amendment um, that you sponsored to that uh, to that bill that would give new life to the National Science Foundation and establish a directorate for technology and innovation. How important is that to America's competitive edge? Well, it's really essential because uh, there needs to be some institutional focus, not just on on the basic curiosity driven research that occurs uh, at our uh, nation's uh, fine universities. Uh, but also uh, some directive research, some research uh, that's uh, pre-market and won't be funded by venture capitalists because the payoff is, is oftentimes 10 years or more, uh, but, uh, but research that uh, has shown promise and uh, has national security implications. That would fall in the realm of, of uh, physical uh, research, research in the physical sciences, and uh, it, right now, there's, there's not a lot of institutional focus on that. And, and many of the applications coming from our universities for research in this area are denied. So if we have a, a dedicated department within the National Science Foundation that's exclusively focused on this area, uh, it will benefit our economy so that we can make more things here in the United States. And uh, by extension, it will also benefit our national security. So, so then, what do you see as the major causes of the semiconductor shortage uh, that we're going through right now? What can be done? What can be done about it? I have to tell you, I, my mind was blown to hear the the statistic from the secretary saying that zero percent of the the vital, the high end semiconductor chips are manufactured in the United States. It's, it's a major vulnerability. It's an economic vulnerability, which is what we're really feeling right now. Uh, this is what workers in, in Indiana's auto assembly plants are feeling. This is what many consumers are feeling when they go to buy consumer electronics and uh, they see the prices of, of so many of those goods have increased in part because of this uh, bottleneck we've seen in, in the supply chain. This was catalyzed by the COVID-19 pandemic which has been, of course, a, a national stress test for us culturally, from a public health standpoint, uh, and economically. Uh, what, what has really happened uh, here, Jonathan, is, is uh, over the course of, of uh, you know, uh, 
this this pandemic, it became very difficult for our auto manufacturers to determine what the demand was going to be several months down the road. They anticipated uh, very light demand. Um, in fact, the American consumer and, and uh, those outside our borders actually exceeded their expectations. So. Um, they weren't prepared for the amount of chips they needed. They didn't order them. There tends to be at least a four or five month uh, lag between making these orders and, and having uh, these, uh, these microchips produced and delivered. And, and so that led to part of the shortage. But this really, uh, this really uh, preceded uh, the, the pandemic coming. Uh, this is why in 2019 that there was uh, legislation, the CHIPS Act, uh, that was part of the National Defense Authorization Act, because our fabrication plants in the United States are at 90% of capacity. They're at 90% of capacity uh, because increasingly our nation, uh, uh, our national consumers are, are purchasing more things with an on-off switch, or we're purchasing uh, uh, more of these. Uh, this this phone right here, uh, this iPhone has, I'm told, eight of those high-end uh, chips in it. And, and so the things that uh, we buy in this 21st century economy are increasingly uh, run on these sorts of chips. So it's catalyzed by, by the pandemic. And then there's a national security dimension to this because by some accounts, 92% of these higher-end uh, chips are produced by TSMC in Taiwan, another 8% by uh, Samsung in South Korea. There's a vulnerability from the Chinese Communist Party, which has uh, indicated it, it uh, covets the island of Taiwan and, and uh, could e indeed uh, occupy it militarily um, if they're not strategically deterred from doing so. And I'm glad you brought that, you, you said that last piece there, because that's what I was getting at with, with the secretary about the national security implications of having 70% of those high-end chips being produced by Taiwan and looming in the background is China uh, and, and sort of their designs, their designs on that island. You know, you, you have said in the past that you think that this shortage will last another year, maybe longer. What kinds of things need to be done now to ensure this won't extend beyond that time frame you set out? Well, the sooner that Congress uh, can go ahead and advance the, the US ICA, uh, the sooner the CHIPS provisions pass, and uh, that will lead to the immediate uh, uh, unleashing of plans to build more of these fabrication facilities in the United States. TSMC out of Taiwan, Samsung uh, out of South Korea, uh, they're already uh, building plants. TSMC is building a, a plant uh, in uh, Arizona. Samsung's building one in Texas. We have other major chip manufacturers who are poised to build other fabrication facilities um, in, in states uh, that are good to do business, uh, like, like the state of Indiana, perhaps. Uh, so that's uh, one of the things we need to do. If we don't pass this legislation, uh, then there are other areas of the world and other countries that are offering their own incentives. Uh, but clearly, we need a domestic supply if we're going to have a 21st century manufacturing uh, economy. Well, that's a great segue into this question from Indiana, from um, Mark Bender. Can you build a chip company in Indiana? 
I'm so glad, Mark, uh, that you asked that question of me. Um, I asked uh, the, the chief executive officer of a, a major uh, uh, chip manufacturer, you'd be very familiar with the name, uh, what criteria they look at uh, to d determine where they're going to build their fab facilities. Uh, he said, well, we need um, plenty of, of, of land uh, available. We have that in Indiana. We need ready sources of fresh water. We, of course, have that in, in the great state of Indiana. We need a very well-run state government uh, that uh, provides a measure of, of certainty over a number of years about public policy. Uh, we certainly have that. And lastly, they need a ready pipeline of, uh, of experts, electrical engineers and, and production engineers and, and other such experts who work at these fabrication facilities. And we have some of the finest engineering schools in the country between Notre Dame and Rose-Hulman University and Purdue University. Uh, so um, we have what it takes uh, for, uh, to, uh, uh, to entice a, a fab facility into the state of Indiana. And I think uh, our, our State Department of Commerce, the Indiana Economic Development uh, Corporation uh, may well land one in coming months. But but we first need to pass this legislation. Right, right. Do you view this issue, this global chip shortage, this global semiconductor chip shortage, more as an economic issue or a national security issue? Or can the two not be decoupled? They can't be decoupled. Uh, when the United States of America and our partners and allies, I, I have to emphasize, uh, uh, don't have the economic wherewithal to defend our common values, uh, universal values on, on which this country uh, was established, uh, then, uh, you know, then our national security, of course, is, is uh, imperiled. Our, our, ways of, uh, our way of life is uh, uh, threatened. And, and, and so, uh, you know, the only way we're able to equip ourselves uh, to defend uh, against bad actors and uh, to strategically deter uh, anyone from uh, attacking the United States uh, is by uh, making sure that we lead the world in 21st century technologies uh, and that uh, our economy is large enough so that we can dedicate a portion of it uh, towards keeping us safe uh, and secure. Right now, this moment in history is, is very, very important, Jonathan. Uh, we just learned within the last week uh, that the Chinese Communist Party has successfully tested a hypersonic glide vehicle that's nuclear capable. Uh, this is a, a, a new way to deliver a nuclear weapon and uh, avoid the detection of the United States' early warning systems and uh, our, our radar tracking systems so they could evade all of our existing systems designed uh, for a Cold War ICBM series of attacks and uh, instead uh, penetrate uh, those, those defenses and uh, potentially strike uh, the mainland United States. Uh, this ought to be a call to action for those of us who are charged with keeping the American people safe and secure. In order to defend against a, a hypersonic attack, we need to do two things. We need to develop our own hypersonic capabilities uh, so that we can deter an attack. And, and the Endless Frontier Act includes dedicated funding uh, for uh, hypersonics research. 
And we also need to be able to detect these hypersonic uh, vessels, uh, which could carry nuclear weapons. And, and uh, that will come in part through breakthroughs in, in our scientific knowledge and understanding of artificial intelligence in quantum computing, which is also at the heart of the Endless Frontier Act. Let me get you to talk more, more broadly about, from your perspective, the biggest differences between the ways President Biden is conducting the U.S.-China relationship compared to uh, former President Trump's approach to that relationship when he was in the White House. Well, look, I, I've uh, I've enjoyed interacting with those who sort of oversee the Asia portfolio within the National Security Council. Uh, I do commend President Biden for uh, staffing that group up with some really sharp individuals uh, who seem to understand the existential threat uh, that uh, Communist China presents to the United States, uh, understand their gray zone warfare, uh, could catch us by surprise if we're not vigilant. They also, uh, I think, understand the importance of, of increasing, uh, broadening and deepening our economic linkages to other partners and allies in the region so that collectively we can bring to bear our economic, diplomatic, and military weight uh, to bring China into a position of better behavior over the longer term. So on all those fronts, uh, I, I would commend what they're doing. Now, with that said, uh, there hasn't been a great deal of strategic clarity uh, coming out of the White House as, as to what, for example, our trade policy is uh, with China. I think that needs to certainly be clarified. We also need more emphasis on modernizing our military uh, over the years, and this extends over multiple generations, uh, multiple administrations rather, uh, but uh, legacy systems have been funded uh, to the detriment uh, of new uh, systems that uh, uh, really uh, can be uh, uh, game changers, uh, real step changes like hypersonics. And, and so the administration, uh, I think, needs to lean into that uh, a bit more. Uh, but look, I, I look forward to working with the administration wherever I can. Um, I do have reservations, which I should express now because this is uh, you know, uh, our, at the top of the, our agenda in terms of the current business in the Senate uh, with some of the economic priorities of this administration. We're spending too much money at a time when the economy is already opening up. Uh, I don't think that many of those expenditures are, are well targeted. That ultimately undermines our economic growth, uh, which in turn, as we've discussed, uh, uh, will dictate our, our military strength uh, uh, down the road. One real quick question. Um, uh, then President Trump imposed 25% tariffs on $43 billion worth of Chinese imports, which included semi semiconductors, uh, and chip imports have fallen by about half since then. What's former President Trump's role in this chip, this chip shortage? Is he partially to blame? President Trump would have to speak for himself, uh, and he's never uh, he's never hesitated to do so, uh, Jonathan. So uh, you, you might ask him uh, uh, about that. But I, I think we need to take a look at those tariffs in light of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and the current uh, public health come economic challenges uh, that we're facing. 
And uh, so among the many levers we need to be looking at are, are encouraging the longshoremen at our ports uh, to uh, be working longer hours. The administration has, has been working with them on that. Uh, we need to find ways to get our, our more trucks on the road and allow truck drivers perhaps even to drive more hours uh, during this uh, difficult time. Uh, and we do need to look at those tariffs. So uh, to directly answer your question, uh, I'm glad that a review of those is ongoing right now because that could be part of the answer. All right. <laughs> I love your your initial answer to my question. That was great. Senator Todd Young uh, of Indiana, thank you very, very much for coming to Washington Post Live. Jonathan, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.